0: There's, there's three things that I love. Four, if you count uh, circus theme backgrounds for Sunday morning worship. But uh, three things that I love. One is I, I, love, I love gathering with Bethany Community Church, with you. As I, this morning, was able to be in different places in this room. Normally I'm right here. And so to be in the back hearing you sing to one another God's truth, I was joyful. I also love that... We value God's Word. I, lo- I love opening God's Word, seeing God's Word, reading God's Word together, letting it speak to us. And then the third thing is that, is that I love the Psalms. I, every, every time I, I have the opportunity to teach, I think about what Psalm I'm going to, uh, to share with you. And, and so this week, uh, this morning, we will be looking at Psalm 84 Psalm 84, and so it's a joy to open God's word with you because I love God's word. It's a joy to get, open God's word with you because I, I, love, I love you all, Bethany Community Church. And then lastly, I just I love the words of the psalmist as he oftentimes gives us glimpses into his daily life so that we could know what it looks like to follow after God. And Psalm 84 will help us to do that. As we consider our text this morning, my prayer would be this. From Ezekiel 40 in verse 4, where the writer would say, Look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that God shall show us. For we were brought here that God might show it to us. So right now over the next moments, as brief as they are, when I plan the service and I'm not the one leading the teaching, it's all good. But then when I get up and have to teach and I realize, oh man, it's gone. Sorry, Daniel. Daniel. I pray that God would, would show himself to us today through his word, that he, through his spirit, would teach us. And so let's just pray that that, that would be true. Father, we, we calm our hearts even now. We, we close our minds to things that would distract us from beyond this moment and your spirit to speak to us. Open your word to our minds and hearts. Lord, help us to set our hearts upon all that you will show us because you in your providential plan have brought us here for this time. We ask you to speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Passion. Psalm 84 is a psalm of passion, a passionate psalm. And as as you think of that word, it gets used, thrown around a lot today, even in music time with the kids. During Sunday school, I asked the kids, what is passion? Passion, me. What do you think about it? And after kind of a blank stare, they would. They said, "When you care deeply about something, something you you love a whole lot, you get excited about." In our day, we we use this term often. It's pretty much celebrated as as a cardinal virtue, if you will. Job recruiters will say, "We're looking for someone that has passion, someone who will fill this job." Graduates are told, "Follow your passions." as an 18- or 22-year-old. Musicians and artists of all kinds are praised for their impassioned performances. I get pretty passionate, actually, if you think about it. A good burger, a new gadget, the new technology, music, or maybe it's social media outlets that maybe excite my passion, something world crisis or something political, something sports. As I thought about that this week in light of our text, passions come so quickly and so easily, I, I began to ask myself the question, caused me to wonder, what are the things that I should be passionate about? And are these the most important things? Are they worthy of my passion as a, as a follower of Christ? Of course, as a Christian, we know the right answer to that. We should be the most passionate about the Lord and his word, about the church and and spreading the gospel to a lost world that needs to know him. But sadly, as I evaluate my own passions, they oftentimes are not those things. I'm not that good about being passionate all the time about the right things. I have my seasons. Sporadically, I'm good at these things. I get inspired, provoked, convicted, excited about the right things, and I might even stay there for a while. But oftentimes, if you're like me, you get easily distracted by so many lesser passions. I get disappointed. The passions fade. I don't feel what I think I should feel about the things I know I should be passionate about, and so I I get tired. I get bored, and I focus on something different. So this morning, we're going to look at the type of passion, the Psalm 84 kind of passion that this author will will give us a glimpse of. He is passionate about the Lord himself, about his dwelling, about his people. In fact, as, as I read through this several times the last few weeks, I realized how passionate this writer was in his longing for God that that it provokes us, it provoked me to ask questions, to evaluate our own hearts. How do we get like that? How do we attain that kind of Psalm 84 passion for the right things? This is a powerful psalm as it will help us to create right passion. It will help to sustain us when our passion seems waning. It helps to center a passion that might be wandering in the wrong way. And so, the reason I love this psalm for us this morning is that we're not just told, hey, you need to be passionate, but rather we're given a front row seat, a look in, a listen in on this psalmist's very train of thought. We overhear what he loves, what he longs for, how he lives. He invites us ever so gently to join in having a passion for what matters most. It begins to transform the way we live. So this morning we're gonna look at this psalm in three sections. It's it's really as a song laid out well in three stanzas, 12 verses, four verses in each stanza. And we'll make our way through this text, and as we do, I'll provide for us to consider a reason to be passionate about God, and then how we should live accordingly. So the first reason to be passionate comes from the first four verses, the first stanza. We see that the first reason is that God dwells among his people, The first reason that we should be passionate about God is that he dwells among his people. And how how does that transform us in our living? It should provoke us to praise him. To praise him. If you look at the text with me, it starts in saying, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. That's our first point, that God dwells among his people, and it should transform us to praise him. As we read the verses, you can't miss that the writer, he's making a reference to a specific place. In this instance, in this context, it's, it's Jerusalem, because it's, it's there, That is the place where God dwells. And that longing in his life changes the very way he lives. It fills his heart and his mouth with praise. If you could look at the writer, we know that he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He probably lives in Israel, maybe somewhere farther away. But because he's a faithful Israelite, we know That three times a year, he joins other Hebrews and becomes a pilgrim. It makes a journey to Jerusalem to worship God at the great feasts. We know this because Exodus 23, 14, and 17 tells us why this is necessary. God said, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. And so faithful Israelites, three times a year, would journey from their home, possibly leaving All their families, we don't know if they went with them, but they would go and they would worship. It could be hard for some to leave, but for this writer, it wasn't a burden. It wasn't a vacation either. We know that this journey was difficult, probably because of its infrequency and and the roads that were made it difficult for him to travel. But we know that it was... Special, desirable, even precious for him as he longed to dwell with God. Look at the phrase that he uses to describe it. Verse 1, he calls it your dwelling place. Verse 2, the courts of the Lord. Verse 3, at your altars. Verse 4, he longs to be in your house. Verse 5 and 7 later, he gives reference to Zion. And in verse 10, he says, in your courts and in the house of God. He loves to talk about the dwelling place of God. He even had different names for it, different parts of where it was. He loved it because it was where God dwells. Now, obviously, a good Israelite would know that God cannot be contained in one location. The God of Israel is not like the God of the surrounding nations that he knew, where their God would be in a a box or in a temple or in a shrine. 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon prays, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And so this knowledge informed every good Israelite's view of the temple, and yet also one of the glories of Israel was that God chose to make his home among his people. Even though God is infinite, even though God is so great, he says in Isaiah 40, 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? And yet, he chooses to dwell among his people. Exodus 25 says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in in their midst. Exodus twenty nine forty five says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell with them. You see, this was the, reason, the very reason for the Exodus. It wasn't just that God wanted to free his people from slavery. That could have been a part of it. But the reason was he wanted to dwell with them. He was the Lord, their God. Throughout the Old Testament, God's place is described in in concentric circles. You have the nation, the, the physical boundaries of the country, the promised land later to be named Israel, and then within that nation there's a capital city, Jerusalem, Zion, the city of David, it's often called. And within that city on the top of a hill is a temple, and it is the place where people come to meet God. To know him. Inside that temple is a holy place where just the priests, a select few, go in to minister before the Lord. And within that holy place is what is known as the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where God Himself has come. A place so holy, so special, only the high priest could go there once a year with blood to atone for His sins and the sins of His people. And so as an Israelite moved from the edges of Israel in closer and closer to that Holy of Holies, their passion for God grew. Things got better and better as they came nearer and nearer to God's holy place. They would even say that the ground beneath their feet got more and more precious to them. His longing is is emotional and physical. Physical. In fact, it says that his passion even led to physical weakness. Verse 2 says, My soul longs just faints for the courts of the Lord. Some commentators have called this holy homesickness, longing to be with the Lord. Maybe some of our kids right now are having some of that homesickness. Maybe not. To be in their own bed, to be with their friends, the sights and the smells that they're familiar with. Home. But this psalmist was not homesick for just a city, what he's describing here. Not a, not a destination travel vacation where he could relax and kick back, talk about the, the nice restaurants that he went to or the, the beautiful scenic views of the mountaintops. That was not what he was after. Verse 2 says that he pants for the courts of the Lord. The living God. He loves this place because God Himself is there. Hmm. It's not just about any person. It was about coming to meet the person, to meet with God. Maybe there's a place where you go. You look in your in your path, you think of a, a spot that you've created memories, or you look back with nostalgia and reflect on, on good times. I have an app on my phone that's a countdown and I believe today is 21 days countdown to a place that I love that I'm going to go to in 21 days. Um, Big seat on Table Rock Lake. Hmm. Kayaks with my kids, sitting by the pool, reading or sleeping, mostly one or the other, to grill some meat for my family. I mean, that's that's good memories right there. But that's, That's not what the psalmist was longing for. He was longing for Zion because that was where God lives. In fact, we see he was even envious of anyone that gets to stay. He knew that after a few days he'd have to go home. Even in the text we see that he sees birds as he's approaching the temple and and realizes, I could just stay here like the birds. Or the priest, maybe he He sees the priest as he lowers his eyes and says, boy, what if my job was to be in the temple every day to be able to draw near to God? How sweet would that be? He longs to be that close that often to be near to God. Think of that for us, the desire to be with God God has come to us in Jesus. We don't live in that Old Testament period that has to go to to a place. But rather, God in Jesus has been made near to us. Things have changed so much because of what God has done. John 1.14 tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We read through the Gospels, as amazing as they are, we see that Jesus could only be at one place at one time in his ministry. People still had to travel to come and see him. But as we read in Acts, as we're studying through that, we see that not only did he ascend, but he sent his spirit to indwell the believer, to establish the church as a place for us to gather, to be with him. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 1 Peter 2.5 says the same thing. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's people have been gathered into God's place as the church. But not, not only for right now, not only for this world, but for, for the next, for eternity. That's why I love to sing songs of worship that have that eternal perspective. We can give praise to God now, but boy, what a day it will be when, when sin will be gone and, and our blood-washed bride, as we sang earlier, will come. That is reason to praise knowing that we will be with him forever. In Revelation 21, John would write, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither Shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore? For the former things have passed away. Hmm. How is that even possible? It's possible because He, God, will dwell with them. They will be with Him. We will be with Him. You could see how this would bring a, a passion, a right passion for God and His place. This is a reason for us to be passionate It works itself out in how we live, giving praise to God as we, again, as the psalmist is thinking about these things, saying in his mind, okay, if this is true about God being with me, me being with him, if you look around and realize that God's place is the best place for me to be because that's where God himself is, well then, I should sing about it. Let's sing, he says. We should have even a greater desire for that, to lift our voices, to praise God to God for who he is and what he's done. Do you ever think about our times together? I think a lot about our times together on Sundays. Um, From 1030 to 1145, 500 places you could be. Graduation parties this afternoon or a baseball game tonight or setting up for VBC, it's going to happen. right? All these things that are distracting us. But then I could say, do I look forward to Sundays? Tomorrow am I already anticipating Sunday is coming? The gathering of the saints together. Maybe, maybe this psalm could could help us see that our passions might be misplaced. I found that to be true. In my own time spent with this text this week. The first stanza gives us a great reason to be passionate because we see that God dwells among his people. And it works itself out by praising God. But there's a second reason in verses 5 through 8 that we see why we should be passionate about God. It's it's that God strengthens his people. God strengthens his people. And how does that transform us to live? It lives itself out. It leads us to pray to him. To pray to. If you look at the text, he starts it by saying, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. This section makes a kind of a pivot. In the first section, the first stanza, the psalmist is standing afar. He's he's away from Jerusalem, and he's thinking about getting there. He's saying, I want to go. He's packing his bags. He's uh, trying to get his things together. But in this section, we see that he's on the way. He's going. He's he's making the journey. But it it, it seems that it's hard going. It's not an easy journey. He needs help to get there. And these four verses, I believe, highlight a way that God strengthens his people. And it begins in verse 5 where he says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you. There's another a couple times that it uses that word bless. It's almost like the Beatitudes, if you want to will, you call it that, from Matthew 5 and other places in Scripture, um, Psalms and Proverbs as well. It's a great phrase because it's, it's almost like the writer wants you to say, hey, look at this person here, how, how they are joyful, how they are happy in the midst of this hard journey. Why is it they're happy? We see that because he finds that his strength is in God. What happens to that person whose strength is in God? Think about it. How does that work out? It says, his, their hearts are highways to Zion. When I first read that and I thought, what does that mean? There's many ways that we could reference ourselves as Christians, believers, saints, followers of Christ. but I, I would suggest that in this text, Saints are those in whose hearts are the are the highways to Zion. As you look at the heart of a person passionate to be with God, passionate to be strengthened by God in his journey, you could look and see this person's heart is on his way to Zion. What, what a description that that is to know that, hey that person is, is living with an eternal focus, an eternal perspective. This church is filled with people, I believe, that have that perspective. And I know that that means great things to you, that we would not say that we're here to collect things in this world, but rather we're on a place beyond this world. This world is is not our home our church is one in whose hearts are a highway to Zion. We have a destination. We're just passing through. Verse 6 and 7 elaborate what it, what it means as we're passing through. It says, passing through the valley of, of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. You know, this, is a hard, this is a hard text for me to, to think through. I had a hard time finding different commentaries of what the valley of Baca was, nothing to do with Star Wars and, and Chewy but um, it, it, there was, this is the only place in the Old Testament that this exact form of the term is used, and it could possibly refer to a kind of balsam tree that grows in dry or arid lands, um, maybe like a desert-type plant. It is possible that this is a real place. It's probable. Um, sometimes it's been called the, the Repham Valley to the west of Jerusalem, and so if that was the case, it probably makes sense contextually that the, the psalmist was traveling west of Jerusalem through this desert-type area, and he probably lived on the border of where the Philistines lived. So he didn't really have a great group of neighbors that, that loved, loved God. And so this would be another reason why God's dwelling place would be so special to him. It offered him protection and safety. But also, not only was it a physical journey for him through dry and desert land, it also was a spiritual journey as well, one of sorrow and hardship. Spiritual struggle to draw near to God. As he gives imagery there, it helps us to be encouraged. It says, if this is the valley of weeping, as another translation is of this word, The commentator envisions it as tears streaming down the cheeks of the pilgrim who's on his way to Jerusalem. But that's not the only source of water in the valley. We can see from the text that there's also water on the ground in springs that they may have to dig out with with perseverance. The spring is going to be cleared out, and that's going to give to them water to drink, sustenance in the hard road. This is a picture of the kind of work that it might take to persevere through trial. To stay steady in the faith towards God. But we see that there's other sources of water too. Water in the sky, it says that the early rain also covers this land with pools. So there's this kind of faith that waits for God. That he would be pleased to send the rain And so it takes faith to work to get the water out of the land. It takes faith to wait for God when he's pleased to send the rain. One commentator said it this way, They make it a place of springs, which is a classic statement of the faith, which dares to dig blessings out of hardships. But God may choose to send rain, which comes through nobody's enterprise and can bring a whole area to life for he has more than one way of dealing with our dryness. Hmm. Sometimes God calls us to work for it. Sometimes he calls us to persevere, to dig, to review Bible verses, to memorize, to stand fast, to, to serve, to run towards fellowship even when we don't feel like it. Sometimes the rain surprises us we could see not a cloud in the sky and then a downpour. God waters the dry lands of your valley of tears in many different ways. Sometimes we wait. Sometimes we work. But the result is, as is that we go from strength to strength. In verse 7, it says they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God. Now you might hear that verse and think, well, that's not really, I don't go from strength to strength, I probably tend to go more from weakness to weakness, or valley to valley, or um, I wake up tired, I go to bed more tired. But it's not just physical fatigue, it's often spiritual or emotional, feeling like we go from failure to failure, or from sin to sin. We say, I want to do better. I want to be a, a better husband. I want a desire to be a, a better father. I want to do better as a Christian to my love for God. But my passions, they wane and they wander. I go from weakness to weakness. I don't have those uninterrupted victories in my Christian life of strength to strength. But I don't think that's what this verse is saying here. I think this, this is a verse for the, for the needy, for the weak, for the weary and worn out, for the, for the sinner, for the sufferer, for those who are in sorrow. Because if we look at verse 7 in light of verse 5 where it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you. The only way to go from strength to strength is for your strength to be in God. Now, we think about strength to strength, we often just think of, of raw power, but but that's not all. If you think about the city of Jerusalem in this day, it was a walled city, a hilled, a hilltop fortress. So it's referring to barricades and and the battlements that someone who goes from strength to strength would be a person that would come into that city to take refuge, to be looking for protection, for safety within. Someone who does not have ability in themselves to fend off the dangers that are out there. So the psalmist said, I'm running to God's place. I will hide myself here with God because I know this is the only place that's safe. We can be passionate about God because he strengthens his people. How does he do that? Well, he does it in prayer, through prayer. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. So this is one of the shortest psalms you'll hear in Scripture. There's other much longer prayers, some eloquent, full of amazing truth. But all he does in this prayer is, is simply address God and ask for his attention. O oh Lord, listen, look, help I don't know what to do, Father. The prayer has much faith embedded in it because he has both a, a trust in a relationship with God and also a confidence in God's power. Even how he addresses him, O oh Lord God of hosts, Lord is that all capital letters, the Yahweh God, the covenant God keeping his promise, God, the same God who revealed himself to Moses. He knows that he's the God of Jacob because he knows that God made a covenant with him. And he's saying, look, I'm I'm a part of that. I'm your great-great-great-great-great-grandson. I have this relationship too. God of hosts. Host is not a restaurant term of being seated, but rather it's, it's another term of God of armies, a God of many armies at his disposal. There's a New Testament equivalent of this phrase that I found. It's when Jesus, when he, when he taught his disciples to pray, he simply said, our Father in heaven. It's just a different updated language. Our Father, it's the same impulse that this psalmist had of saying, oh God of Jacob, Oh, Father in heaven, we can approach him with that same ease and familiarity because he has brought us near to him through Jesus Christ. But he's in heaven on his throne, ruling and reigning. Isaiah 66 with one says, heaven is my throne. God is a God who is on his throne, ruling in all power and in all majesty. We could find our strength in him. And so when we pray to God, we could say those simple words, O oh, Father in heaven, calling upon our relationship that He's given us through Christ, expressing our faith that He can do all things according to the power of His will. He accomplishes all things for His glory and for our good. Isn't that a great reminder, prayer, for us to know that we don't have to know all the Answers that we need to or all their quests that are out there, but we just need to go to the Father knowing that he will strengthen us. We have good reasons to be passionate because God dwells with his people. Because he strengthens his people. And lastly, this last stanza that we see in verses 9 through 12, the third reason is that God blesses his people. God blesses his people. And how does that transform us to live? It encourages us to trust him, to trust him. Look at the text. It says, behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed for a, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. In the last verse, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you? At first glance, these verses sound a little familiar, like the first four. They have that passionate in there, that longing to be in God's presence. But the first four verses, he's far away, desiring to be there, eager to get there. But the next verse is, "He's on the way. And now in this text we see that he is, he's there. And he's, he's saying, just a day here is great. A day here, one day here is better than a thousand elsewhere. He's looking around the temple guards and maybe sees the guy standing there protecting from an uprising, saying in his mind, I'd, I'd rather be that guy, be a, a doorkeeper here to be in God's presence all the time. It's like that bumper sticker maybe you've seen that says, a bad day, you fill in the blank, fishing, golfing, sleeping. It's been a good day at the office or at work, or whatever. Maybe you can resonate with some of that. But that, that will be the bumper sticker that this person would have on their camel. <laughs> He'd rather be on the job at the temple than at a, in leisure tents of the wicked because this is better it's better it's better to be near god to be with god i saw you can see how this longing for god shapes the way he thinks and lives his priorities his passions have been radically reoriented to god to god's place and even to god himself do you share that same longing do you look around and think, man, I, I, would, I just want to serve. I just want to, I just want to be with God's people. I just want to be where God's people are. I don't want to say the lowliest position because then whatever I reference, you'll think that's the lowliest. So is it serving in children's ministry or is it being a greeter or is it moving tables and chairs in and out? Doing tough jobs that nobody sees. Doing the type of job that won't get you the kind of recognition that perhaps you desire. Those that have nothing to do with the Lord. I can honestly say that at this church, and I said that at the very beginning of one of the reasons I love Bethany Community Church, is this is filled with, you, are, you make a lot of that true, that you serve so quietly, humbly, sacrificially, because you love to be here in God's place. You love to be with God's people because you know that this is where God lives in and through us. Blessed are those who serve. Look at verse 11. He says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is kind of two sides of the same coin, if you will. Not only are it those who walk uprightly, but also the second part of he blesses those who trust in him. Um, some translations have talked about putting this cause effect in place where it's almost like a, what do they call it, a negative or a, a part of speech that you affirm something by saying the opposite. So for example, if I took Jan out to eat and she asked me, How's your burger? I would say, it's oh, not bad. What am I saying? I'm saying, it's good. I'm saying I like it. I'd get it again. We do that all the time and that, and that is kind of what is happening here when he uses that phrase, no good thing will he withhold. It means God wants to give blessing to us. He gives every good thing If if there's anything that you call good or you feel that maybe is lacking in life, God is not giving to you, then maybe we need to ask if the Lord has a different assessment of what is good for you because of this verse, because of this promise. Then there's the last verse of verse 12, the, the parallel phrase, the other side of the coin, where it says, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Walking uprightly, trusting God, two sides of that same coin. We could see here, as it would say in Psalm 37, they would write these words. He would say, trust in the Lord and do good. There's both faith and there's faithfulness. Trust in God in action to do good. In our daily lives, these are reasons for us to be passionate, and they work themselves out in natural ways of how we live our lives before others. So, what do we do when our passions wane? How do we reorientate our passions when they're misdirected? Here's what one scholar said, and with this, I'll, I'll close. He said On Sunday morning, believers meet as living stones of this temple and love being in God's presence. This hour is better than the other hundreds of hours in the week, but their calling is to go back to live in the unbelieving world, which operates on a radically different set of principles. They might like to escape that world and live in the bliss of Christian company all the time, but they're not sure whether they will know God's protection or blessing in their actual context. They find strength in looking forward to meeting with God in the company of God's people again. They therefore commit themselves to walking in the world, meanwhile, in integrity and trust. So brothers and sisters, we have six days ahead of us to walk in the valley of Baca. six days to find strength in looking forward to meeting with God in the company of God's people again. This week, maybe even today, you will encounter challenges to your passion that might erode them, that might cause them to evaporate. My prayer is that you'll come back to Psalm 84 for help and encouragement. Because if in your heart there's, there's highways to Zion, then Psalm 84 is a travel guide. It's a reliable guide through this week until we have the joy of gathering again next week, next Sunday, the Lord's Day, to express our passion of prayer and praise to him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Father, we thank you for your word that helps our passions to be directed towards you, that guides us, that fuels our desires, that centers our passion for you. Father, we pray this week that you would go before us as we walk through valleys, that you would help us to look forward to the gatherings that we would look forward to the joy of being together with God's people. Help us to find strength to walk in integrity and trust in you, that you would do good. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen.